This podcast is brought to you by Learn Prime. Start your journey to becoming a great developer at learn.thoughtbot.com. Uh, it's we moved here. I've been in France for three years now. We moved to Carcassonne mm. just last month. That was a nice pronunciation. Thank you. Carcassonne. I do my best. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast. It is Wednesday, September 11th. My name is Ben Orenstein, and I'm here today with Anthony Eden. Hey, Anthony. Hello. So uh, who the heck are you, and what do you do? I'm Anthony Eden. I am the founder and creator of DN Simple, and I spend part of my time writing code and part of my time running the business. So I'm probably going to mess up a couple times and say DNS simple. I bet a lot of people do this. <sighs> or is that like the big no-no? Uh, one, one slap for each one okay. next time I see you. All right, we'll have Mike give me a slap every time I mess it up. <laughs> and he has to edit in the correct version. Nice. So uh, what does DN simple do? Well, we sell DNS service, we sell domain names, and we sell SSL certificates. If I recall correctly, so you and I have met at a couple conferences, and I've I've heard tell of you on the internet and whatnot. So you used to this was a part time thing at first, right? Absolutely, I used to work for Living Social. Mm-hmm. So I was a full timer at Living Social, and uh, I actually had started DN Simple before I started working at Living Social. I was an independent contractor, and uh, the opportunity came up to go work at Living Social, and I said, Ah, oh, this is going to be a great opportunity. And you know, Chad Fowler was CTO, well, not CTO. He was he was the VP of Engineering, and he was. Uh, he was bringing people on board, and I said, "You know what? I want to do this." Uh, and so I made I set it up so that the two things didn't conflict. They knew that I was working on it, uh, and I was upfront with them from the beginning. And then I was doing both essentially. I would work during the day with Living Social team, uh, and then uh, when I had free time, usually on the night and the weekends, I would make Dan Simple better. Hmm. Until finally, in April of this year, I was able to go full time on Dan Simple, and now we're here. That's beautiful. Yes. Um, I, I want to talk a bunch about the company, but what was it like uh, working for and with Chad? He's been on the podcast and is I'm a fan. Uh, Chad's a he's I didn't get to see him too much. He was so he was building a team so fast, and you know he had he had the responsibility of bringing a lot of engineers very quickly. So I didn't get to work with him personally too much. I we did get to hack together on one or two projects. So that was kind of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but he's a, he's a great guy. Uh, I'm happy that he's moved over here to Europe and he's in Berlin now. Uh, I've actually got a chance to see him when I was in Berlin last time. That was great fun. Cool. So I, I like him as a person and I think he he's a good leader when given the control that he needs. Is there a veiled criticism in there? Not at all. No? Okay. I mean, no. of living social? I mean, that's a criticism of if you don't give your leaders enough power to lead yeah. then they're not going to be able to they're going if you if you tie their hands with requirements and restrictions that that don't that aren't within their idea of how to run a business how to run a technical side of a business in the case of a, of a vp of engineering then you're going to get the results that you get mm. yeah what were the what were those crazy explosive growth days of living social like <laughs> crazy and explosive uh, i joined in just after they had started moving into the bigger offices right across from the white house and oh, man it was a lot of people were joining really fast and the team was growing and and you know you get there's two sides to that coin there the, the one side is it's awesome because you get to work with all these these people that are that you know and that you respect and and you get all these new ideas flowing in it's really great but at the same time it's managing that type of growth is really really hard yeah. And it leaves it it basically leaves a lot of people on the outside trying to figure out how to fit into this quickly growing community of developers. It's it's just hard. It's yeah. really hard. It's hard. It's really 
so we we have not had growth anything like that, but we have been adding people at a, a clip that's faster than in the past. And one of the things that we think a lot about is like, are we ma- able? Are we maintaining the culture? Is there enough of like a core here that when you add a new person, they can learn the culture and the way that we do things and become part of that, as opposed to like it kind of fracturing a bit and sort of there is no culture. Sure, being a small company and growing slowly, it's much easier to 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 work on building the kind of company that you want to build when you're growing really fast, which is you're obligated to in a space like they were in when they, this, the competition was fierce. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, I mean, it was huge and, and they were in a race. And in that type of situation, it's extremely hard to, to have a cohesive team that grows to 100 plus people uh, within a year. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. All right. So, so what, what made you found DN Simple? I've been in the DNS indus- and domain industry since 1999. I was actually a part, a founder in one of the first seven companies that was able to sell .com nam- names when they were deregulated. Hmm. And so I've had this connection with it for a long time. I went away, w- went away from it for a bit. But back in 2010, uh, I was, <laughs> I hate to admit this, maybe it's, it's the impetus for the creation, so it's okay. I was a, a customer at GoDaddy. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I just, I I was going through and I think I was registering a name for some purpose. And I said, this is insane. Why am I sitting here doing this and managing DNS with somebody else using their lousy DNS interface um, when I could be building something that would be much better mm-hmm. and that would create a foundation for a business? And so I spoke to my brother and I said, hey, you know, we got to go into business together and build a DNS service. And he's like, okay, I'm in. Mm-hmm. And he didn't think too long about it. And so we started building the core of it, and after we launched after four months, I think, of developing the core, and it just we said, we're going to do this. We, we, we know this business really well. I've failed around it many times. I've run registries, I've run registrars, I've run DNS services. I know the ups and downs of running this business. I can do this. And I think it was just I finally got the confidence to do it. Hmm. So, so you failed a couple times at starting companies in this area or running them with <laughs> other people? Yes, I've failed many times. I've I've failed as I've failed as running a registrar. We 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 did really great in the first couple months, and then we lacked sort of a distinguishing business. Like we we didn't have something that made us special. Mm-hmm. So we quickly the the the, the battle back in the early two thousands for domains essentially became a price war. And it was a price war that in a lot of ways was kicked off by GoDaddy. They were smart enough to, to basically cut the price in half. The, back in the original days, I don't know if you remember this, but it used to cost 35 bucks to register a com name. Mm-hmm. And GoDaddy basically cut that in half and started growing fast. And, and a lot of other registrars started coming in and saw it as a good business to get into. And competition just got fierce. And we didn't adapt to that. So that company ultimately went under. I don't know if it went under. I left before it fully went under, but the the pattern was definitely one of a very quick rise and then a very slow demise. And then I've also I did .mp back in 2005 and again in 2008. Uh, .mp is the TLD for the Mariana Pacific Islands, Northern Mariana Pacific Islands. And that was I mean there were circumstances that caused it to fail twice. You know, uh, and it's just it's great for me because during the entire time, I, I was able to get paid, I was able to learn, and I was able to see the mistakes that we were making and learn from them and help use them to create Dan Simple. But at the same time, you know, that's a lot of time in my life that I was spent failing at business. It's like, if I, I wish I could have realized earlier that I could have been an entrepreneur 
and started earlier instead of um but i say i wish i could have but I, there's you know yeah it's in the past well you had so you had point. to go through those failures probably to make yes, this successful I think so. thing i think so so you've got um simple baked right into the name was that sort of like your your war cry going into this yes that was the idea that and it's funny because we started off as a DNS company first and foremost, and we figured, okay, we can do DNS first because we know it. And the simple part is, how do I add a domain to my DNS and then just set up as quickly as possible? So we did that first, but really the simplicity, I think, is is in things like registering a domain. Hmm. I, th- I think we got a lot of that right. I, I, I've seen the registration flows for a typical registrar. It's lots of screens, and you have to enter your contact information potentially multiple times, and we said, let's do away with all that, and let's see if we can boil it down to as few pages as possible. And I think we've done a pretty good job of doing that on the registration. And then we did the same thing for SSL. I mean, you think about the SSL process, right? A lot of people have a hard time just generating a CSR, uh, a certificate yeah. request. Yeah, yeah. And so we made that easy. And people said, this is great. You know, it's, it, I do it, and it's uh, one or two clicks, and I'm done. Mm-hmm. So yeah, simple is our war cry. <laughs> And, and so you you recently went full time on this thing, yeah. April of this year, uh, I had previously hired. Uh, we we acquired a company in 2012, and that was uh, the company that brought on Simone Simone Carletti, who's a, a developer in Rome. We bought his company, and then Darren, my brother, who is my co-founder, joined full time back in November of 2012. Mm-hmm. So I was the last one, really, and and I wanted to make sure that we had sufficient revenue and. Uh, good cash flow, so that I never really had to worry about payroll. Mm-hmm. So I've been in that situation as on the receiving end, and it's really uncomfortable. And for a founder, I, I imagine it's, it's even worse. It's just you don't ever want to be in a situation where you're not able to pay the people that have invested their time to help you build this thing. Right, totally. Hmm. So on, on the, the technical side of these things, <clears throat> so you started with DNS. Is that more or less a bunch of servers you put on the internet to answer, hey, what do, what IP is associated with this name? Yep. I mean, we had four, we started off with four servers on different, on different virtual private servers. So four hosts that were running DNS and built an interface to it. That was, the, that was step one. Mm-hmm. The front end interface is Rails. We, we started back in the Rails 2. Now we're up on the latest of Rails 3 and we'll move up to Rails 4 here in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the DNS was running on uh, open source and still is today on the Unicast name servers. We'll get into that a little bit later if you want, but uh, still running PowerDNS, which is a fantastic open source C++ DNS server. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's got pluggable backends for MySQL, Postgres. You can write custom backends for it. It's, it's really, really nice. And um, we launched that and focused on making quick updates and just getting the DNS data in there. That's what it came down to. Uh, and then we've built up from there. We have a lot, like the technology today running our Anycast network, which is our new network that we're, we're pushing, is uh, completely different. <laughs> Much different. From A lot of it's from what we've learned over time, and, and we've built stuff that works for our needs now. So have you, have you swapped out a lot of the components that you guys use to sort of more complex or more tailored things? Uh, yeah, and especially on the new networks, it's it's over time as we've developed the the understanding of how our business runs and the needs of our customers, we've adapted as much as we can. But there got to a point where we we just needed to be in control of the name servers, uh, our authoritative name servers, and and hence we ended I ended up writing a new implementation that is on our Anycast network, and that implementation instead of being C plus plus is actually in Erlang. Oh, interesting. 
Yeah. And what is an Anycast network? What is that? Okay, so an Anycast network lets multiple nodes around the world answer. Like, basically, they all have the same IP address. Hmm. So, f- for example, we have five points of presence, uh, three in the U.S., one in Europe, and one in Japan right now. And we can add more onto that fairly easily. It's just a, ca- it's a question of capital investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, those each Every single one of those has uh, eight servers. There's eight virtual machines, essentially. Mm-hmm. Uh, one pair for each NS name server. So we have four name servers, so each one has a pair. Th- uh, a pair will answer with the exact same IP address as another pair across, you know, in, in the, like, so for example, uh, we have a server in Chicago. It will answer with the same IP address as a, sh- as a server in Amsterdam. Hmm. Now, what this means is that the routing protocol actually takes care of deciding where a, uh, a packet is going. So if you're in, I'm in France, so I should be routed to the Amsterdam machines, mm-hmm. uh, whereas you, you're in, you, you're actually in Boston, right? Boston, so yeah. you probably are going to our, our Washington, our DC machines. They're not technically in DC, but they're IAD, you know, mm-hmm. so they're, they're that area. Mm-hmm. You're going to be routed there. Now, the benefit from this is that you get, a, it basically tries to pick the fastest route. So you get shorter latency, um, and there's a lot of more. There's other interesting aspects of it that we're sort of trying to take advantage of. For example, the fact that now we know that you're in the U.S. and thus we could potentially pr- provide you with an address that's better for the U.S. than in Europe. And and if you're in Asia, you might get an address that's different. Now we're not, we don't do that as a service yet, but it's the kind of thing that we can do with AnyCast. Uh, the other thing that's neat about it is it's essentially scale. It just keeps scaling up because we can add more points of presence. It has the same IP address. It pops on the network, and and the routing tables will eventually be updated so that people that are near or that have a short route to that pop that point of presence, yep. they just go there. Mm-hmm. And now we've load balanced away some of our traffic to this other place. You know, so that's that's great. That's cool. What is the 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 rough description of the algorithm that lets that does route things there? Like, how do you how do, how do the routers know, like, oh, this is a better point for you, or it's closer or something? So there's a protocol called BGP, mm-hmm. which is the, I believe that it's a term for border gateway protocol, but I'm not 100% certain, mm-hmm. that, that is involved in figuring out what the shortest route is. Frankly, I don't know the details of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are people out there, that, the way we've done is we, we run a managed network, and we have people that are better at deciding how to route, the, how to design that system then we are, do that for us. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a decision to make uh, about a year and a half ago when we started building out this Anycast network was were we going to buy our own hardware and attempt to build it all ourselves or were we going to find a managed solution? And the managed solution was the right solution for us because it cost less at the time, um, even though operationally it's going to cost us more in the long run, we, we have access to all the knowledge of, of the people that run the routers. And if something goes wrong, we can get in touch with them. So for us, that was the, the right route to go. Uh, I would probably be able to answer even better if we ran our own hardware. Uh, but yeah. in this case, I'm not going to. But somehow <laughs> you plug in the new thing and say, hey, this is my IP. And the routers around it, that knowledge propagates through. and, and... Yeah, they start bro- the, the router that gets added. Essentially, a, net, uh, a route gets broadcast. Mm-hmm. And so we would say, hey, a new route is available to this node at this point of presence, and the other routers would, would update their tables to determine where it should be going, to, if they should be routing to that. Gotcha. Cool. So you wrote this um, some of your system in Erlang. That's correct. Can you talk about that a little bit? Sure. Uh, so last year, uh, around a little before this time last year, I was, I was trying to work with PowerDNS 
with a Lua backend. And I was trying to get it to do what I wanted to, which essentially we have some custom, I don't, you're probably pretty familiar with, with Dan Simple as far as, I think you guys use it quite Yeah, a we're bit. customers. One of the things that people love about it is the alias record. And the alias record essentially acts like a C name, but on the root. And it, it allows you to say, I want to point my root host to a, another host name. And then it will look up the IP addresses dynamically for you behind the scenes and return it as if it was an A record. Uh, because you can't run a C name on a route. The rules with C name records is that they can be the only record on a particular node, on a host name. So in other words, www.mysite.com, if that's a C name, you cannot have any other records on that same name. That's mm-hmm. the way it's designed in the protocols. And there are a lot of resolving name servers out there that will will not handle multiple records uh, next to a C name correctly. Mm-hmm. So alias record is our solution for this. And so alias requires us to have code in the back end that does work to actually look up the, the, the IP addresses for those host names. Mm-hmm. And it, we, initially we wrote it in Ruby and plugged it as a back end in a, into PowerDNS. And it worked really well for several years. But we got to a point where uh, we were just, performance-wise, we were having trouble with it. And so we started looking at Lua, and the issue was is that we couldn't get Lua to do, it was very, very tough to get Lua to do some of the work that we needed to do. We tried real, I tried hard. I spent several months trying to get it to do this. And ultimately, I said, I'm, I'm done. I'm frustrated. I'm going to try something else. And I said, I really want to try Erlang again. I had tried Erlang as a language a couple times. I'd never really understood it, but I had started again uh, reading the Learn You Some Erlang for Greater Good, which mm-hmm. didn't exist when I first tried, but exists now, mm-hmm. which is a great resource, by the way, to learn Erlang. And I started looking into Erlang, and I found the bit syntax for describing um, basically a string, like a, a an array of bits, right? Mm-hmm. Array of bytes in, and bits. And I said, this is going to be fantastic for describing DNS packets. Mm-hmm. It's perfect. And and it and so I started playing around with that, and that just led to I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to get the advantage of the theory was I get the advantages of Erlang's low latency. Erlang was designed for low latency, soft, real time work, basically. Mm-hmm. I was like, this seems like the right thing for DNS. I started working with it, and the more I got into it, the more I I found that yes, it was working. I had to tweak um, some of the performance aspects of it because there were bottlenecks, as any app that you're trying to pump a lot of data through will have. The overall structure of the application and that the way that Erlang has these actors which will operate independently and they don't share memory, that there were so many great things that I started to appreciate after it that I just said, okay, I'm going to take this thing to production. And that was it. So I, I, I spent the, I, the better part of last year after August just working on trying to get this thing into production and a good portion of the beginning of this year. And now it is in production. And What's great is now I can do things like add, I just added uh, a lot of uh, metrics to it. There's a, a a library called Folsom from the guys at Boundary, and it, it was super easy. Like I, I was able to add in like massive amounts of metric collection, and I, I was like, "This is fantastic!" And when I did that, I realized I made the right choice with this. So that's why we're sticking with it as opposed to looking for alternatives at this point. Mm. And so it's because of some of its design principles. Is it uh, easy to add new processes to it, like to sort of yes. scale it out. Well, so it's well, we don't do it through the uh, Erlang was designed to have multiple um, multiple nodes communicating with each other with each other as part of 
the standard libraries. Yeah. So and this the, is the, the actor theory, model you're talking about here? Well, or something the, different. The actor model is really the idea that you communicate between two separate processes with messaging. Um, and it's funny because it's it's having discussions with people who are really into object-oriented programming. In a lot of ways, this is what object-oriented programming is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. It just turns out that all of your objects really should be actors. That's what it comes down to at the end of the day, I think. So the the idea is they communicate with messages. The The beautiful thing about Erlang, what makes it so fantastic for running these different processes is a, a framework that's in, as part of the language called OTP. It's part of the standard libraries. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the original name is the Open Telecom Protocol, but it's essentially a way to design these processes that can run independently in parallel and communicate with each other through messaging. And it's a way to describe how to build generic servers inside of your application. So a a generic server has the ability to respond synchronously and asynchronously. It has a a a startup and a shutdown procedure as part of it, mm-hmm. and then it has a non-standard way or a non uh, a different way of getting data in and out of it as well if you need to go throughout. But it's it's designed in such a way that all the generic pieces have been pulled out into the OTP framework, and all you do is write your specific your specific pieces mm-hmm. uh, on top of that. And, I mean, really, the problem with Erlang is that it, it you once you start using it, <laughs> everything else, like, you, you want these patterns everywhere else, and you start to, it starts to drive you a little crazy when you don't have them. A uh, pattern matching is another great one. Once you once you get the hang of pattern matching in Erlang, it just makes you wish it was in every other language. <laughs> yeah, no. I've started playing around with Elixir. Are yep. you familiar? I am. So it's uh, so for people that aren't, it's a uh, it's a language by Jose Balim. It runs on the Erlang VM. So it's like Elixir. It's like Ruby flavored Erlang. I, I mean, I I saw him talk about it last year at Strange Loop at the Emerging Languages Conference. Uh huh. Jose is, he's done a really great job of Building a language that's not—it's not just Erlang with a different syntax. He's built a new language, is what he's done. Mm-hmm. I think that was a good approach because his language is approachable to people who are not necessarily comfortable with the—they're more comfortable with the syntax of something like a Ruby. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, he brings in the concepts in Erlang and then adds additional concepts. Like there's a lot of additional support for macros and metaprogramming that is not in Erlang as a language. And I think he did He did some really great things. I used it a little bit. I wouldn't hesitate to look at it again at this point, except that I, I actually have no problem with the Erlang syntax, and I like, Erla- I like Erlang for its limitations. One of the things I've been looking for lately is languages that have limitations hmm. in their syntax. Because I find that, that sometimes having these languages that are extremely expressive can, can actually be a problem because there's so many ways to do things afterwards. Try some scheme. <laughs> uh, somehow I don't think I'll be writing any scheme but I could I could I yeah. probably could and I think the, one of the ones an example I think and I'm not going dis- to I'm not dissing it as a language I'm just saying this is the feeling that I get is Scala as a language like that Scala as a language you can basically like completely change the language and that to me is both awesome as a you know if you like to geek out on languages but also extremely dangerous if what you're trying to do is get the job done yeah I've so heard this that's com- just, yeah, Lisp is similar in that you can sort of like really rewire stuff. And uh, I've heard people complain like, you know, if you macros are great when you understand them very well and use them, you know, responsibly, uh, but it can make it really difficult to come into sort of a new code base. It's like, okay, there are all these, these things that you don't know that are not part of the normal language that operate in their own unique way. And surprise, yep. you get to figure it out. 
But see, yeah, I've actually this argument has never like really scared me that much because like this is people like oh metaprogramming like you you can open core classes and break the language and it's like yeah but you can also do awesome awesome stuff if you know what you're doing. This is true, and and with great power comes great responsibility, right? Yeah, and I, I would I, I think at least my personality I I always tend towards the like give expert people more power rather than limit people from hurting themselves. Like give me the best you. the best foot shooting gun ever, and I'll try to use it <laughs> responsibly. I guess I'm I'm I I like the idea in principle of having the, all this power. I'm also pragmatic when it comes to actually building things, and yeah. to me, I like the the result of what gets built a lot more necessarily than I'm, I'm still intrigued by how it gets built. That's why I'm involved in. That's why I do code retreats. That's why I go out to do conferences and speak to people on on programming languages and things like that. But when it comes to and the day to day during work, my talks and heckle you during your talk. Um, Sorry about that. No, I like it. It's, okay, it's, it's well, all audience participation to me, even if it's... It is, and, and you took it very well, so it was good. The, the, the point, though, being that in my, when I build things, I don't like surprises so much. Uh, and I've written quite... I've, I wrote quite a bit of closure as well. Mm-hmm. When I was... The, the last six months at uh, Living Social, I was writing quite a bit of closure with the, the mail team. Mm-hmm. And it's a great language. I mean, it's, it's a fantastic language. I understand why a lot of people are excited about it. Um, but the, I liked writing closure that was just use the very core syntax, you know, basically the Lisp syntax. Yep. It got more difficult as more and more macros were added for me to understand the intention behind them. But that's my deficiencies. As a developer, I'm sure I can get around that. Mm -hmm. But then I start to wonder, you know, how, what kind of barrier does that create for somebody else who has to get into my code as well? Sure. That's the challenge really. So you mentioned that you do code retreats. Have you yes. done uh, like one of Corey Haynes's code retreat? I have done multiple Corey Haynes code retreats. Actually, I've been uh, I've done every Global Day of Code retreat since it started. Awesome. Uh, I've DN Simple has been a sponsor of every Global Day of Code retreat as well. Uh, mm-hmm. We I love the idea of code retreats. I've learned I've learned so much both from working on languages and code retreats that I know, but even more so on learning something new that I did didn't know before. At a code retreat, the first time I got to really learn closure was actually with Mike Martin and Uncle Bob Martin at a clo- at a code retreat in Orlando. And the irony is, like, I knew Micah, and I was like, "Wow, I get to sit with Micah." And then I, I afterwards, I went with with Bob Martin. I didn't even know who he was. Uh, awesome. <laughs> so I'm just sitting, and people are like, you're, "You're sitting there coding with Uncle Bob Martin." I was like, "Yeah," and <laughs> it's fun, and he's he's cool. He's driving, he's showing me around his closure. It was great fun, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I got to learn how to to design and structure a program in Clojure uh, in that 45-minute space with a problem they already knew. That's the beauty about Code Retreat, right? You go in, the problem's a solved problem. So you can instead focus on everything other than the problem. Mm-hmm. And and I love that. Yeah, that's, uh, uh, that is great. That's We were just talking about this yesterday because um, our test-driven Rails workshop where we teach TDD uh, uses a to-do application. And like a couple of people are saying, oh, to-do application is such a played out idea. You know, it's everyone's example app. It's like, yes, but every single person knows how it's going to work. Like you don't exactly. have to spend any time saying, here's the problem domain and here are some of the models and blah, blah, blah. Everyone can immediately understand and figure out, you know, what's going to happen in a to-do application. And so it lets you focus on the thing that we actually really want to teach, which is like the process of TDD. Smart. But, yes, I think I like it. I like I like boring examples a lot of the time. <laughs> yes, I do too. But it's, it's tough. It's, it's tough to choose good examples. Like I was, so I, you you saw one of my refactoring talks, uh, yep. and 
it's funny you get it's like if you pick any when you pick an example there will always be people that are like oh well you know this would never happen in the real world or like it's like that was that was that was so simple and so you know it, it wouldn't work when something is more complex so you have to get something that's like reasonably difficult or reasonably complicated so it looks kind of real to people and yet not so complicated that you can't you get caught up in the domain knowledge and right like just just, a, just enough logic to make it uh, to to have some complex logic but not so much that you have to be a domain expert yeah exactly and i feel like that's one of the, actually the hardest parts of of those talks i've been doing is coming up with examples that will will get both of those things and no matter what there will always be people that are like oh yeah but no real code doesn't look like this and it's like i know it doesn't like the point is not this this exact example it's the concepts that we're talking about here programmers just love the nitpick yes we do so so what has been so that at code retreat you guys do a game of life right that's correct. And you have s- you not d- wait a minute? Have you ta- not done a code? I retreat? have not done one. Oh my goodness! You need to remedy that. the The global day of code retreats coming up. I believe it's coming up in December. December fourteenth. Uh, yep. You need to go. I want to go. I'm going to do it. You should do it as a, as an attendee first. Be, be careful because it's addictive, and okay. then you want to start going to more of them. <laughs> okay. I'm putting it on my calendar. Uh, yeah. So so you have Conway's game of life. And you have you start you pair everybody always pairs, mm-hmm. and you have forty five minutes to essentially work through um, building out an implementation of Conway's game of life. Now, the thing that's interesting about it is that while you start off with no rules, as the day goes on, you get constraints added. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for example, one constraint which is fun that when you add is say no return values. Right, and so people just go, wait, how can I have something that's built without return values? And it, and it stretches your mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that's great about it is at the end of every forty-five minutes, you change pairs, mm-hmm. and you throw away all the code that you just wrote, mm-hmm. and you start from scratch. Yeah, that's and beautiful. It is. It's 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 great fun. You meet other people, and you get to practice your programming chops. And there's a lot of chance to to discuss sort of why you made these decisions. You'll often have people of different expertise and, and different programming languages, so they might choose a solution that is native to their language, and then all of a sudden you start talking about, well, what 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 could you have done differently if you had a functional programming language, or mm-hmm. what could you have done differently if you made sure to, to not have accessors in your in your objects, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Uh, if you were only just you know passing messages back and forth, yeah. there's, there's all kinds of ways that is, and it's a, it's often up to the facilitator to to make sure that that works out well, mm-hmm. uh, which is why Corey's great uh, because he he's a fantastic facilitator. He's done it so many times that he's and he's patient and he has oh, a yeah. he has a facilitator's voice, you know, very calming, true, and yet true. curious. And he, did he create this? Was he the founder? He w- I so I don't think he was the sole founder. I think that the first code retreats I believe were at CodeMash. Somebody may correct me if I'm wrong here. Okay. Uh, but the, I think it was uh, multiple people involved with creating it. But Corey sort of turned it into a thing. He created the nonprofit to, if I recall correctly, to sort of build it out mm-hmm. and to grow it. And he he put a lot of energy into growing the concept. And yeah. it's it's really nice because there's, I mean, Global Day of Code Retreat has hundreds of cities around the world with people joining in. That's a pretty interesting movement as far as i'm concerned when people are saying we care enough about the craft of code to spend our saturday Mm -hmm. working with other programmers just to get better at writing code yeah that's beautiful i i just i'm realizing sitting here that we haven't had Corey on the podcast which oh you should remedy that absolutely for sure Corey's great he is he's a good guy yeah uh okay so you are full-time now 
how is the, the and you're actually in, in Carcassonne, France. Is that correct? It's correct. I yeah, didn't know I'm that si- was an actual place. <laughs> yes, it's not just a game. It was a place before it was a game. Okay. Uh, it's, we moved here. I've been in France for three years now. We moved to Carcassonne mm. just last month. That was a nice pronunciation. Thank you. Carcassonne. I do my best. Carcassonne. Carcassonne. Like <laughs> so, so we moved near here. We moved, we're in a town about 15 minutes away, and we moved here. Uh, we had an opportunity to come over here and, and live in a house, and we said, okay, we're going to do this. And uh, it's, it's nice. It's definitely rural. But uh, it's it's comfortable. I mean, I don't know what else to say. I have a, a nice little workspace. I have a fast internet connection now, and um, it's it's a good place to be. I, I have I have guests that come all the time. Hmm. So we used, what I've been doing is for many years. Ever since Corey actually again started this back in the days, Corey was doing his uh, his programming. Uh, what did he call it? He was traveling around the U.S. Yep, and he would essentially you'd let him crash your place, and he'd pair with you yes. on something. Yeah, and he came to my plate, my house in Florida, and he hung out for a few days, and it was fantastic. And ever since he did that, I've I've invited people to come hang out. Uh, in fact, I just picked up David Chalemsky from the train station before I started the podcast. Oh, really? So David's hanging out here for the next couple of days. I'm going to show him around a little bit. Oh, awesome! Tell him I said hi, and thanks for our spec. I will. <laughs> Maybe he'll watch the podcast or listen to it afterwards, and he and he'll hear that. That'll be great. So it's it's a lot of fun to bring people here so that they can experience France in a comfortable environment uh, where we can take them around. They have an English speaker, but at the same time, they they can see people speaking French around them. And if they know a little bit of French, they feel hopefully not too uncomfortable to to give it a shot. It's France can be intimidating yeah. uh, as a non-native speaker. Yeah, you know, totally. When you come in here and you, you don't speak French at all. So we just try to create an environment where people are a little bit more comfortable, so much so that we took it and we turned it into an event that we did for the first time last year with just a small group where we brought a group of programmers for a week and hung out in Provence near Avignon. Mm -hmm. And it was a great success. I'd like to do it again. It's a lot of work to put together, but uh, I think it's it's a good way to get people into France and comfortable without feeling like that they're they're just getting bombarded with with the French language and and getting scared and then not experiencing the the culture and the people and the country a little. Mm. Are are you a native speaker? I'm not. I started learning well, after I met my wife who is French. Okay. And she started teaching me. We lived in Paris for a year. Okay. And I started learning when I was in Paris and basically just kept learning little by little and then now with the last 3 years I've I've become fairly fluent. Still make plenty of mistakes, and my writing is pretty atrocious. I'm working on that next. Hmm. Cool. Well, let me know if you're doing that uh, have programmers in France thing again. That's pretty fun. <laughs> okay, wait, are you committing to coming then if I do another one? I Yeah. If okay. I can do it, I'll go. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Yeah, right. it's, it's tough. I mean, I'm asking a lot for people. It's like, hey, come spend a week. You'll be able to work, but you also have to drink a bunch of wine and hang out yeah. and visit sites. And mm-hmm. I, It's tough. It's really, really hard to get people to come. Yeah, that sounds like a tough sell for sure. <laughs> With a guided tour around France. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so I, I went to Paris and I, I ran into some of what you're talking about, which is it's it's pretty intimidating. And like I learned enough French to be like, hey, is it okay if we speak English? And most people are like begrudgingly like, yeah, fine. And there is a little Paris, bit of... Paris is a special place though yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. Attitude wise, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. I love the city. I love it. It's I love incredible. it. But it's it, it's definitely a special place. Mm-hmm. Cool. <laughs> so um anything else? What what else should we talk about? What haven't I asked you about that would be awesome? 
I don't know. What ha- what else can we talk about? So we talked a little bit about Erlang. We talked a little about DN Simple. I'm also writing stuff in Go these days. Mm. How's that going? Uh, it's a lot of fun. The The thing about Go that is fantastic as a language is, um, well, one, it's fairly accessible. Like, it's not an exciting language, right? The Most of the constructs in it are are very obvious, and it does what you think it would do. The great thing about it is its, is its resource usage. I mean, I took a the first program that we took and switched from a Ruby program to a Go program was the little service that does our redirection, our UL redirection for Dan Simple. The the reduction in memory and CPU usage was so so incredible that I was shocked. I thought it was broken. <laughs> um, I mean, it's it's just it was incredible. So to me, that's Go is a good language for those cases where. You need to have something that has limited resource, or you want it to minimize its resource footprint, both in memory and CPU. And I found that so far, it's I've been writing mostly small programs with it. Although in general, I try to more and more I try to find myself writing small programs that are hooked to other small programs to get the job done. And Go is a great language for it's it's, it's got built in H- an HTTP server built in. It's got JSON parsing built in. It's it's got all kinds of things built right into the language or into the, the standard libraries that are, it makes it really easy to build certain types of services. And I like that a lot. It's interesting. The profile of the things that you build are so different than what I build. So it's like Go and Erlang for me, not probably that practically useful. Certainly not on for like client project type things. It's like I, I think you'll find, I, I'm, I'm curious to see, Erlang, I, I get it. I mean, it's, it's tough for people to imagine Erlang because essentially Erlang, you're saying, I need a system that is built around lots of processes that interact with each other for message. It's a long-lived application. And, and, you know, web applications especially, we don't think in those terms anymore. We think of, like, you know, the request comes in, the request goes back out. Uh, I don't, the things can die off. If they if I kill off processes, it doesn't matter so much. Whereas with the Erlang stuff, we expect it to run for quite a bit of time without any problems. And if, if a failure occurs... We want it to fail fast so that we can fix those failures and get, launch it back out so it can run stable again. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Go might turn out to be interesting for specifically for services, so for web services, um, because the the performance characteristics again are so inc- they're so much better than what we have in some other languages uh, like Ruby and and I would say probably Python as well. Although Python's pretty good as far as resource usage, better than Ruby at least, but. Um, and Java, when it comes to you know memory usage of the VM and things like that, the Go's patterns for these types of things, the, the its usage is so good that I could see a world where if your client wants lots of small web services that interact with each other, Go might be a language you want to take a look at. Uh, I think you'll find it accessible from its syntactic nature and also the fact that it it has built in um, parallel, essentially the ability to write these these Go routines that can operate independently. It, it's very useful for certain types of things. Hmm. So it's it's a language. I like looking at lots of different languages, and now I'm, I'm learning Haskell. That's my next one. I, I just think it's fun to learn languages, and, and I try to learn them and find a use for them because every language seems to have its place. And I think Go, Go does have its place. You, you, I have a, I'm going to make a prediction, in fact. Do it. My prediction is that in one year's time, Ben will be writing Go. Wow. Code. Not exclusively. But it will be part of your tool chest. Interesting. All right. Well, That's my prediction. All right, we'll see. We'll have you back <laughs> on in a year. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, uh, this has been awesome, Anthony. Thanks for uh, hooking up and uh, telling us what's what. 
thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it, and I like what you guys are doing. I'm going to keep listening, and uh, I wish you the best of luck. Next time I'm in Boston, I'm going to come visit the offices. You're, are you in the Boston offices I am, then? yeah. Yep. Next time I'm in Boston, I'm going to come and visit you guys and say hi and maybe spend a day or two. Yeah, you absolutely should. And we can, uh, we'll, we'll interview you face-to-face. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, Anthony, if people wanted to get in touch with you, what's a good way to do that? The best way to get in touch with you, I'm on Twitter. Uh, a Eden. That's that's easy way to get in touch with me. Uh, otherwise, you can always send me an email. I'm Anthony at dnsymbol.com. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to thoughtbot.com slash giantrobots slash 66. Today's podcast was recorded and edited by Mike Manor and produced by Chad Pytel. Thanks for listening.